Functional medicine is right in some of its progressive views, but it's right the minority of the time. And that is the problem. The problem is, is that the exception, the minority of cases, the small subset of patients who need the more progressive functional medicine model is being conflated as the rule. And what you end up having happen there is patients are treated, they're overtreated and they're, they're given treatments that they don't need. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today for the third time is Dr. Michael Ruscio. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me back. Uh, my pleasure. So you're known as the, the gut expert in a sense, and you've uh, released a fantastic book, but um, you've also shown a lot of interest in hypothyroidism and thyroid in general. So today we wanted to chat all things thyroid and really explore, I suppose, some of the, the differences from conventional view of testing and treating thyroid to the, I suppose, the typical functional medicine approach to um, managing hypothyroidism. So before we jump in, perhaps just give us a bit of a background on your interest in um, treating thyroid conditions in the clinic. Absolutely. And I'm sure it's no surprise to clinicians that there's quite a large tie-in between gut conditions or gut health and thyroid health. We know that the, there are at least one paper looked at about 1,800 patients, and they found that the most commonly associated condition to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth was being hypothyroid or being on thyroid medication, just as one example. And, and that the hypothyroidism or being on thyroid medication was more tightly associated to SIBO than even was immunosuppressive drug use, PPI use, or even prior intestinal surgery. So fairly, fairly marked results there. We know that there's at least some loose associations between H. pylori and thyroid autoimmunity. There's been one paper published in Poland showing that those with SIBO had a significantly higher level of thyroid TPO antibodies than did healthy controls. One Italian study has shown that the treatment of H. pylori led to a reduction in thyroid antibodies. Some data is showing that if a patient is suffering with chronic ulcers or gastritis or potentially even atrophic gastritis, various gastrointestinal conditions, that they may only see a stable TSH, a, a stable thyroid medication as monitored by TSH when using a very easy to absorb liquid form of thyroid hormone. And there's some theory that one of the reasons that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth connects to thyroid autoimmunity could be that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth could lead to an increased sequestration of selenium, which essentially causes this presumed insufficiency of selenium, which may open the door for thyroid autoimmunity. And one of the other things that I think is, is overlooked, you don't quite so much see this published, it's more something that you figure out as a clinician looking at these things, is that many a patient come in with symptoms that they think are due to their thyroid. And to put it quite simply, their thyroid is not the cause of the problem and the culpable issue is really coming from the gut. And this I think is one of the most unfortunate things that happens in clinical practice where this tunnel vision deeper into thyroid is, is pursued, where simple changes in gut health can really rectify someone's condition. And, and it, I mean, it, it's progressed so far now to the point where it's not just me seeing this. We now have a, a fairly sizable following reading our clinician's newsletter on a monthly basis, and other clinicians are now finding these things and helping patients who have otherwise been unable to be helped. And now they're publishing their case studies in our newsletter. So it's not something that is just confined to what I'm proclaiming to see in my practice. When you understand this and you start applying it and looking for it, you see it's, it's, it's fairly, I think, endemic in functional medicine. So those are some of the more, I think, salient points that tie the gut to the thyroid and, and why, even though my primary area of interest is the gut, I've also been pulled into thyroid and it's, it's uh, 
one reason because the gut has such an impact and two, oftentimes patients who think they have a thyroid problem actually have a gut problem, but some actually do have a thyroid problem and being able to make that discernment is very helpful to get the patient to the right treatment to help them feel better. Yeah, okay, so that really uh, helps explain how you, you, you got into looking at thyroid. And yeah, clearly the gut has a huge role and we'll get to that uh, shortly. I just wouldn't mind taking a, a step back and um, maybe just coming from perhaps a, a patient perspective, like you can see online there's some really nice slick and convincing websites about do you have hypothyroidism and recommendation of several tests. And there's often this uh, discussion. I just want to start with the first one. Um, say a patient comes in um, and they, as you've mentioned, uh, perceive they've got a thyroid issue. One of the the primary um, biomarkers, if you want to call it that, is the, the TSH. And there's a lot of conjecture around that. So I just wanted to spend a bit of time on that first and foremost as a, a point of reference of measuring thyroid. So uh, if we look at TSH, there's... In the conventional view, the, the normal, quote-unquote, range is about 0.5 to, say, 4.5 uh, uh, per million international units per litre, whereas there is a, you know, a view in functional medicine that it should be lowered the upper limit to 2.5. So that's sort of the first area where um, there is this maybe concern that people are... There's a lot of subclinical hypothyroidism going on undiagnosed, and that's where they often turn to functional medicine... So, um, first of all, can you give me a bit of a, your views on TSH? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I think the overarching concept that will undergird this entire conversation is functional medicine is right in some of its progressive views, but it's right the minority of the time. And that is the problem. The problem is, is that the exception the minority of cases, the small subset of patients who need the more progressive functional medicine model is being conflated as the rule. And what you end up having happen there is patients are treated, they're overtreated and they're, they're given treatments that they don't need. That is, that is the takeaway. And we'll, we'll filter in a bunch of justifications to support that statement, but that seems to be the recurring theme here, which is what is true for a small subset of patients that need some more progressive, more nuanced, more personalized thyroid care, that is true, again, for the minority of patients, and that's important to be able to identify that, but it's conflated to be the standard practice model in functional medicine. And marginally elevated TSH or subclinical hypothyroidism provides a nice example of that. So when TSH is above 4.5, you have subclinical hypothyroidism. Excuse me. Now, that has to be paired with a normal free T4, very important. So if someone has normal free T4 plus an elevation in TSH, that is subclinical hypothyroidism. And there is controversy, even in conventional medicine, there's controversy about when we treat that and when we don't. Now, a population where we have to treat that or it's almost always a good idea to treat that is in any woman with infertility or a woman who is currently pregnant. That's a little bit different of a track. So I don't want to go into too much detail there because that takes us into a, a, a bit of an exception, but that, that is a, that is an exception to everything that I'm about to lay out. Now we do have meta analyses. So summaries of sev several clinical trials looking at what happens when we treat people with subclinical hypothyroid, what happens when we give them thyroid hormone, because if the functional medicine posit was correct, then we would see all these patients who are subclinical hypothyroid, meaning their TSH was as far elevated as 4.5, forget even the 2.5 cutoff. They are now above 4.5 and they're being given thyroid hormone compared to a control group. And we're, we're checking for, is there an improvement in BMI? Is there an improvement for uh, various indices of, of quality of life? Whatever the measures may be, they, they can vary from study to study. There's a little bit of heterogeneity there, but the theme and the outcome is the same which is there does not seem to be any consistent evidence that people respond favorably to being given thyroid hormone when they're subclinical hypothyroid, with one exception. When the level gets to be above 10, the TSH level gets to be above 10, that's when you can make a case. There, there is data to support response, improvement in the patient when TSH is above 10. 
There's also an age gradient, meaning the older someone is, the less important an elevated TSH tends to be. So if you see a TSH, just using an arbitrary example here of 11 in someone who's 75, that's much less concerning than seeing a TSH of 11 in someone who's 25. So the consensus of the data seems to be that when TSH is above 10, that's when you have the highest likelihood of the patient responding favorably. And there is an age associated gradient where the older the person is, the less important a TSH elevation is because that may be normal age associated elevation of TSH. Now there's a nuance here where some lab testing may not identify what would otherwise be a low free T4. And so this is where functional medicine may also be partially right in saying we should have a more narrowed range for your free T4 values. But in my opinion, the best way to look at this is initially screen a patient for TSH and, and normal methodology of the free T4. And if you're suspicious, so let, let's say they're, TSH comes back slightly elevated, let's say it's a six, and they're highly symptomatic, they're not responding to any other treatments, and you're suspicious that their TSH that was a six paired with their free T4 that was normal in this otherwise non-responsive patient, you're suspicious that there may be a thyroid problem present that you weren't able to detect. This is when using a more specific methodology, which is known as the dialysis with liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, this methodology as compared to the normal methodology, which is the immunoassay, that's what you typically get out of the box from your major labs is the immunoassay. If you use this dialysis with liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, it filters out certain proteins in the blood that may confound the value of the free T4. And so what may happen is this, Mary Sue comes in, she's not feeling well, you work her up, her TSH is six, her free T4 is normal, you've done everything you can for this patient and they are still not responding. So you then want to have a further evaluation of their thyroid, you repeat TSH, but this time you use the different methodology for the free T4, the dialysis with liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, and now you actually see that paired with that TSH of six, they have a flagged low free T4. So now you've made the diagnosis. And what's beautiful about using that methodology is there's consensus amongst the values. And there have been data published showing that these patients do exist and they do respond well to treatment. So as you can see, there are some grains of truth scattered in that landscape of what functional medicine is espousing. But my argument would be that for those claiming that a TSH above 2.5 needs to be treated or is abnormal, or that we should be treating everyone who is not in the upper half of the normal T4 range, that is a, it's a sloppy and imprecise way of approaching this, albeit probably well-intentioned by the provider. And if we refine our scope a, a bit and we update our methodolo uh, methodology, then we can determine who really needs to be treated and, and who doesn't need to be treated. Yeah, great. I love that progressive approach of layering it on top of one another. So just just to be really clear, um, back to the TSH. So if you had a patient that came in and their, their TSH on their, on their first visit was somewhere between 2.5 and 4.5, that essentially to you suggests normal thyroid physiology. means nothing. Okay, okay. In my opinion, means nothing. And where the recommendation of having it below 2.5 comes from is that is a goal for when someone is on medication. So it's very different from someone who is not on medication. So that's, yeah, say in this second scenario that you painted where they do have the, a true subclinical hypothyroidism, you've done the dialysis method. So you need to be more, have a, you do have a narrow bandwidth of your therapeutic goal then to get the TSH to around less than 2.5, is that correct? Once you start someone on medication, yes. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a confusion that arises where we're conflating the goal of when someone's being given external thyroid hormone to when someone is not being given external thyroid hormone. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and there's other data to support this, which is essentially that over 50% of subclinical hypothyroid cases will spontaneously remit. Mm. 
So we should be very, very, you know, um, circumspect with how quickly we tell someone that they have a thyroid problem and start giving them medication. And, and I should also mention, and, and pardon me here if um, I'm a, a little bit passionate about this, but you know, I can say in the United States, I don't know about in your neck of the woods if the same thing is occurring, but this is getting so bad now where other doctors are writing in and saying, gosh, we are, we are having to undiagnose patients as hypothyroid who were never truly hypothyroid, who are being given thyroid hormone as a support, and five years later, they think they have hypothyroidism. Um, I'm seeing this. Other clinicians who follow our newsletter and are reading the month-to-month chronicling of this are seeing it. And we have a few case studies that we're publishing. One will go out in our next edition from Dr. Robert Abbott, who was able to really help this patient who was given all this unnecessary thyroid testing and treatment and the, and the cause of this person's problem was not their thyroid. And this compounds with the study recently published in Greece where they looked at, I believe it was 199 patients. The, I may have the, the end slightly off, but about 200 patients who had an, ambigu- an, excuse me, an ambiguous thyroid diagnosis. And when they rechecked these patients, they found that 60 six zero percent of those patients were not actually hypothyroid and they could come off thyroid medication feel well and have normal tsh and normal t4 so this is becoming an endemic problem in functional medicine this overly liberal diagnosis of hypothyroidism and we want to be progressive and have our eyes open but we also don't want to be giving someone a fictitious diagnosis which does nothing to help them feel better and also contributes to you know fear or um, dismay because they have now been labeled with a disease. Yeah, and I think that's important to acknowledge that people obviously have symptoms, um, and I suppose the trouble with, if you want to call that, uh, thyroid gland is that a lot of the physiology is, in a sense, you know, generic or nondescript. So it's uh, people perhaps suggest that their weight gain or fatigue or hair loss, etc., constipation is due to the, the hypothyroidism, but it could be uh, more likely something else. It's just that- exactly. And, and, and as you're alluding to, that is not a good justification. Symptom, symptoms alone are not a good justification for diagnosis because there are so many symptoms or, or sorry, conditions. There are so many conditions that have an immense symptomatic overlap. IBS, SIBO, hypothyroid, underslept, hypocaloric, undercarb, histamine intolerance, mast cell activation, right? All these things have a fair litany of symptomatic overlap, which is why I keep coming back to more of a clinical hierarchy that is based upon prevalence data rather than this somewhat empty promise of fancy functional medicine tests that's supposed to diagnose everything. When you pull on that string and start validating or trying to uh, you know, see what kind of validation underlies some of these tests, you see that it's on shaky scientific data at best. And, and so it, it oftentimes makes more sense to come back to a well-constructed clinical hierarchy. And, and that's based upon what are the most prevalent conditions because if the symptoms have so much overlap and if the lab testing is somewhat ambiguous, I mean, yes, we want to use lab testing, history, family history, prior response to treatments, all these things help shade in the gray. But the, the overarching structure we should be working through is a well-constructed clinical hierarchy or, or algorithm. I'll get to that algorithm in one second. I'm really desperate to know about it. But just one last bit with the um, TSH. And this is some of the, the feedback I've received and I've read it over the years as well, that um, some claim when it comes to treating, say we're treating subclinical hypothyroidism and they're um, some claim that their patients don't feel better until they get them to this super narrow and typically low TSH range of, say, one or, or less. Uh, what's your views or experience with that? Or is that, again, is that the sort of the, the minority or the exception that um, may be conflated as the rule? No, there is evidence to support that. And, uh, you know, essentially what's been, what's been found, and this is what I've codified into the hierarchy I've been writing about in the clinical newsletter, is before going to combination therapy, when I say combination therapy, that means T4 plus T3. So this would be, combination therapy would be armor, natrothyroid, WP thyroid, or combining levothyroxine or synthroid, which are T4, with something like Cytomel, which is T3. It's been fairly, or I should say there's preliminary evidence showing that 
instead of going to a combination therapy, you should first try increasing the dose of T4 alone and potentially driving them into an even lower than normal TSH range because that actually may lead to the symptomatic resolution in some patients. And that should be done before going to T4 plus T3 because there's a fairly high level of adverse events like cardiovascular episodes or, or just more simply said palpitations and, and racing heart or insomnia or even fatigue when patients are put on T3 plus T4 too quickly in the process. So yes, there, there is data to support that. And from the best, most honest, objective read of the data, it seems the most intelligent first step is start them on a T4 medication. And if they're not responding, consider a slightly higher than normal dose of T4 alone, hence driving that TSH perhaps roughly set down into the lowest fourth of the range. And that seems to be the best first adjustment to make rather than jumping right to a T4 plus T3 because we have the data there and we can get into that in a moment if you like, but the data there show that for the vast majority of patients, but not for all patients, T4 plus T3 will not be the best maneuver and there's a fairly high level of adverse events. But unfortunately, sometimes this nuance gets lost. Me by saying that will invariably anger some people who feel that everyone needs to be on T4 plus T3, but I'm not saying that you can't do that. It's just trying to identify when we should do that and, and just be objective about it and not be married to one outcome or one therapeutic approach compared to another, but rather, shocker, <laughs> use science and the studies that have attempted to answer this question to inform what we do in our practices. Yeah, okay. Uh, just to clarify that when you said lowering the, um, you, you're doing progressively higher T4 doses and the patient's not responding, is that uh, their, their symptoms haven't improved yet they're still in the normal TSH range or you've got them to, yeah. Well, they would, They. I mean, and there's probably a little bit of room for a case-by-case -case personalization on this, but you would have someone, let's say below 2.5 in TSH and they're not responding symptomatically. So you, the next thing you could do is, is give them more T4 to drive that TSH a bit lower than you may normally aim for, uh, let's say between one and 2.5, and see if that resolves their symptoms. So the, the TSH will be dropping as you administer more T4, and you're looking for the symptomatic response to tell you that that's the right approach that you're employing. Okay. Uh just one other final test, um, again, because it's uh, popular, yet the, maybe the science doesn't match the, the interest, uh, at least to date, is the reverse T3 test. So what's your position and understanding of, of this test? Well, clarify or qualifier here and disclaimer, I haven't gone through an extensive review in the literature of the reverse T3 test. But you don't really need to when you look at the other available data. You pretty much figure out how you use thyroid hormone or how to navigate improving the health of someone who's otherwise non-responsive. And, and it breaks down to kind of the thyroid hormone algorithm that we're filling in as we go here, combined with making sure that you don't miss low ferritin. That's part of the algorithm that I've put together. And also making sure that you don't miss a problem in the gut as the source of their symptoms. When you do all that, uh, and also, I, sorry, I shouldn't gloss over this. You make sure that the person is not over-exercising, overly stressed, underslept, or under-caloried or under-carbed. As long as you hit those items, then you've pretty much addressed almost every cause of a high reverse T3. And my, my challenge has always been that there doesn't seem to be great treatments for high reverse T3 in and of itself. And there's, there's some evidence showing that you may, someone may do better if they're given T3 rather than being given T4 if they have high reverse T3. But it, it, it misses the, the bigger point of what is causing them to have that high reverse T3 to begin with? And that's what I think is being forgotten about. If, if the reverse T3 test told you one specific cause of the reverse T3, I think it would have plausibility. But 
the fact that it doesn't, the fact that you come back to these hidden sources of stress or inflammation, said broadly, as the underlying cause of that, you know, makes me really question what the utility of running that marker is. And I should also mention that there have been some studies done, the most notably was a study putting patients on a paleo diet and paleo lifestyle plan. And they found that these patients became healthier via pretty much every measurable parameter. They had lower body fat, better body composition, better subjective well-being. And at the same time, they saw a slight increase in the reverse T3, which was a, a really important study, I think, to show you that people can actually become healthier when they reduce their calories slightly as ostensibly these patients did when they went from a normal diet to a paleo diet probably slightly reduced their carbs. And so this put them under a little bit of metabolic stress that was a healthy metabolic stressor. And the way their body adapted to that was slightly elevating their reverse T3. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't go too far with those healthy metabolic stressors and have someone go too low calorie, too low carb, uh, and, and see in a problematically high level of reverse T3, but it still doesn't tell you how to fix the problem. So really, I guess said simply, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm open to uh, there being some exceptions to this, but I think for the majority of cases, what you're seeing with reverse T3 is a lot of noise and not really much signal. Okay. Yeah, and um, we'll put some papers on the, the link here as well and from our, our uh, look as well. For me, it seems like a, yeah, more of a, a consequence of your changing physiology than a, than a cause, particularly it seems to be really elevated in acute illnesses like, uh, you know, semi or starvation uh, during a, a cardiac event, etc. The reverse T3 will go up to try and match your metabolism to the to the environment that you're currently under. So that makes right. sense about that. The paleo is a mild caloric deficit typically, um, and, and the body's just adjusting, doing the fine tuning. You know, exactly. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. All right, so. Without any further ado, let's ha explore this um, algorithm because I think that really ties in nicely. That to me, it sounds like the thyroid's often responding to the environment that it's slowing down in metabolism, maybe even deliberately to protect the body against some sort of stress. Or in, um, and this is the heart of the, the, the metabolites. Yeah, yeah the, the the metabolites. I mean, if someone's clearly hypothyroid, then that you know we want to address that. But yeah, I mean, exactly, and that's the point I think is missed. It's that oftentimes these downstream analyses of looking at your T3 or your um, reverse T3, those are more so showing you how the body's adapting metabolically, but not telling you that anything is truly wrong with the thyroid gland itself. It's almost like doing an adrenal function test, which are questionable scientifically to begin with. But even if you found that someone had high cortisol, it wouldn't tell you what's causing the high cortisol. Um, so yeah, fully, fully in agreement with you there. Okay, great. So yeah, let's go through it because I, I'm curious to see because this algorithm could potentially help look at what's causing um, the potential suppression of the thyroid, but also maybe what could be the masquerading as hypothyroidism as well, like the SIBO, et cetera. So yes, right. take me through your, your process. Well, the first thing you want to do, like we've already talked about, is run your TSH paired with your normal T4. The normal T4 is the immunoassay methodology. And that's a good screening for true hypothyroidism. And I know, unfortunately, that can sound heretical, but that is a good screening for hypothyroidism. Now, in a patient where you see a slightly elevated TSH, so you see subclinical hypothyroid, you may want to follow with that dialysis liquid chromatography mass spectrometry follow-up to see if they also have low free T4. And that will help you snuff out the cases that are looking initially like subclinical hypothyroid, but are actually true hypothyroid. Now, at the same time you're doing that, you want to make sure you're going through your clinical fundamentals, which involve diet and lifestyle. So make sure you're finding the diet that's right for them. Are they under eating? Are they overeating? Are they ketogenic and they clearly shouldn't be? Are they eating way too much carbs and they clearly shouldn't be? Are they exercising too much? Are they not sleeping enough? And make sure you optimize their gut health. Uh, I can't overemphasize how important that is. And 
I know this is coming from someone biased in the gut direction, uh, we, but we just published in this month in our clinician's newsletter, a case of low T3 and amenorrhea, meaning no periods and infertility. And in six months, just by working on her gut and giving her a little bit of natural herbal female hormone support, she was pregnant. So we didn't need to treat the low T3. That was a distracting factor. That was the noise that we talked about before. And we focused on her gut and we focused on some gentle female hormone support. And she went from being for months and months and months amenorrheic, non having no period to being pregnant. So this, this is powerful stuff and it does manifest in some of these fantastic case studies. So that's step one. Now, depending on how deep you want to go on step one, there is some nuance that you could build into the analysis. So you could look at this maybe as either step one or step one B. And I would simply use the person's history to determine this. And this optional step 1B would be screening for ferritin. Sopi, the researcher in Finland, has published a couple papers that have shown that the cause of some non-responsive thyroid cases, meaning uh, in, in one study, women who were put on levothyroxine, so they were found to be hypothyroid, they were put on levothyroxine, and they still had symptoms. When he did a follow-up analysis of their ferritin, he found that in women with ferritin below 100, who were then given supplemental iron to bring them above 100, 70% of the women who were not responding to their thyroid hormone replacement saw their symptoms disappear. So we know that thyroid autoimmunity is the most common cause of hypothyroidism. And we know that depending on what estimate you read, around 30% of people with thyroid autoimmunity will also have autoimmunity to their stomach tissue known as antiparietal cell autoimmunity. And this can det deter the stomach from making adequate levels of acid, which can then lead to malabsorption of iron. So what is likely happening here is those who have thyroid autoimmunity are at increased risk for low hydrochloric acid production, are at increased risk for low iron absorption. And it appears that your normal kind of CBC with differential may not, and, and looking for things uh, you know, that are more classical and anemia markers, may not be adequate to identify this functionally low iron, which does seem to be clinically relevant again, at least according to this preliminary literature from Sopi, wherein as many, according to his preliminary documentation, as 70% of, of women in this case who were not responding to thyroid hormone and had ferritin below 100 saw their symptoms go away when supplemented with iron to levels of ferritin above 100. And I should mention that the standard cutoff range may be a little bit different than where you are, depending on the lab, is oftentimes around 20 to maybe 30 for ferritin. So there will be, they will be in the normal range on the lab, but still be a candidate for iron supplementation. So that's, that's definitely something important to keep in mind uh, because that could have a simple nutritional cause. And we know that low iron causes things like exercise intolerance and fatigue and potentially brain fog or thinning hair. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll pause there for a second before I keep <laughs> rattling through this. Uh, yeah, that was, I didn't know that one. That's fascinating about the ferritin, but I, I really like the, that whole step about screening, diet and lifestyle, and then um, second tier in, in that step is the gut health and then look at ferritin. All right, yeah. And of course, if someone comes in saying that they've had anemia before, then, then sure. I mean, that, that makes it even, even more likely that you'll find this. Uh, I mean, it makes it highly probable that you'll find this. Um, so that's definitely something to think about. And why not put a combination therapy medication recommendation as step 1B? Well, again, because cardiovascular side effects are fairly prevalent in people who go on this medication. Not to say it doesn't help anybody. It does help some, yes. But if you look at the meta-analyses, the best data suggests that there's a fairly high level of cardiovascular side effects from combination therapy. Whereas iron supplementation would be repleting a nutrient deficiency. So in a hierarchical risk management fashion, we, clearly we would put iron before a combination drug therapy. 
Uh, and just back to the, the gut health, do you have a bit of a hierarchy of, of screening there? Is it uh, just signs and symptoms or you start diving into the SIBO breath testing or the, the H. pylori antibodies, et cetera? Uh, well, it's a, it's another, I mean, it's another can of worms, so to speak. So in the, let's see, it was this month, it was an April's edition of the newsletter. I also went through a comprehensive review of what I feel to be the two of the, the, the two best stool tests, not SIBO breath tests, but the two best stool tests for parasites, dysbiosis and, and the like. This is your diagnostic solutions GI map and your doctor's data comprehensive paras, comprehensive um, stool with parasitology, and neither test is perfect. And so, you know, when I say is there a simple solution there, it's not complicated. It's not overly complicated, but it's also not super simple. And the person's symptoms and clinical context are important. And one of the take homes there is the the GI map, the diagnostic solutions test, is potentially more accurate, but there is not the scientific documentation to back that up yet, and it may suffer from false positives. Now, the, the doctor's data uses the MALDI-TOF, which is also purportedly more accurate and has one study to back up its claim. So kind of the challenge is both labs are making the claims that their test is the best, yet there is very sparse evidence to support either claim. Although I think both labs are trying to work to fulfill their claims, you know, we're, we're on the cutting edge of the science here, so I'm not trying to say either lab is doing this with malicious intent. Uh, I think they're, they're just really on the tip of the spear of the science. But the, the lab that has the better data, the one study to support it, would be the doctor's data, Molitoff technology. But we have to weigh that against the fact that you may find things on a diagnostic uh, solutions GI map test that you may miss on the MALDI-TOF, but those could suffer from false positives. So you, you kind of have to weigh the pros and the cons and just be a little bit cognizant of the, the strengths of each test. You can, you can get really far without doing any testing. And, and this is something now, um, and again, for the people who read our clinician's newsletter, you'll likely see as my more current case studies are starting to filter into the monthly issues that I'm listing tests for patients as optional oftentimes because you know, I just laid out pros and cons for these two tests that are supposed to be the two best tests in functional medicine and neither one is actually perfect. So we combine that with a good clinical algorithm and sometimes you get farther just by looking at someone's symptoms and having a good clinical kind of model to work someone through. And I lay that out in Healthy Good Healthy You. It's essentially a, a personalized or a personalizable eight-step plan, uh, really more of an algorithm because plan denotes it's linear. This isn't really linear. It's more algorithmic, but that that is detailed in Healthy Good Healthy You. So that's not a simple answer, but absolutely making sure that you work through improving someone's gut health can have massive implications for their overall health, including these symptoms that you think are coming from thyroid. All right. So now we get to step B and maybe also before you uh, explain it, how many patients do you think get as far as step B with this algorithm? Good question. Um, well, so there's, there's, we talked about step one and then step, you know, 1B could be ferritin, or depending on the person, if you're not highly suspicious, you could say step two could be low ferritin. I, and I, it's a little bit easier when you look at this written out because when you have the, the step 1A and 1B, it sounds confusing when we narrate it, but when you look at it kind of in a bullet list, it makes it a little bit easier to say, okay, you know, this is where I would go and this is what I would do. Um, so you've got your one, we've talked about, two could also be ferritin depending on the context. And then in the way I've written this out in our newsletter, I actually put 2B is considering running that dialysis methodology and considering that higher dose. I kind of lump that in with step one, but really step one would be just to kind of clean this up a little bit. Step one would be your standard thyroid testing with T4 if they came back hypothyroid plus your diet, lifestyle, and gut. And then step 
2A to make it a little bit more concise would be considering ferritin. And step 2B would be considering the follow-up test where you looked at the dialysis methodology to see if they were actually true hypothyroid, even though they initially only screened as being subclinical hypothyroid. And then from there, when you get a little bit more into the modulation of the hormones, the, the hormone or medication type that you're using, that's when you can consider either moving them to a liquid gel tab, namely tyrosine of T4, or to a combination therapy. Now, the context helps you determine which one of these paths to go down. If it's someone who, despite your best efforts, is still suffering with gastrointestinal symptoms, let's say they are way better when they came in, but they're still suffering. And, and by the way, just, just to make sure we're, we're you know, um, capturing a degree of realism, not everyone not every patient leaving someone's office will leave perfect, right? Some patients, and I use this example oftentimes, if you're looking at a moderate to severe case of inflammatory bowel disease, a win for some of these patients is not having surgery to have part of their colon or, or small intestine excised and being able to eat a somewhat normal diet, but they'll still have some symptoms and they may never be perfect and able to go out and have the same food as everyone else with no repercussions. So in someone who still has some gastrointestinal symptomatology and you're concerned that they may not be optimally absorbing, that is when a trial on a liquid T4 may be the, the best step. Because now what you're trying to do is find the medication that's best for a non- optimal absorber. Now, if that's not at play, let's say their gut health is pretty darn good, but you are concerned that they're either not converting well or that they could be reacting to what's in the thyroid hormone. Some thyroid hormones have binding agents and such. So this is when using something like NatureThroid or WP thyroid that are a bit more hypoallergenic and include the T4 plus T3 may be the next best step. So that's kind of your, your three is considering, depending on the context, either the combination therapy or the liquid gel tab. And the reason why this hierarchy is so beneficial is because you don't want to give combination therapy to someone who doesn't need it because then you have the risk of the side effects that are very well reported. So what you do here is you use process of elimination and you try to clean up these other more important factors. Like firstly, pegging the diagnosis of hypothyroid if they are truly hypothyroid, making sure their diet and lifestyle and gut health are squared away, making sure they're not low in ferritin. And now when you've worked through all of these, you have a very high probability that you will see a response from the medication, from the combination medication, most specifically without the negative side effects. And when you look at the studies that you know, tacitly use this, this structure, this is where you see a high degree of positive response. In fact, there was one study that was recently published that found a very high response rate. I believe it was about a 90% response rate to combination therapy but the population is what's important here. The population of patients that was given the combination therapy was patients who were on T4 and non-responsive. So that they were, they were T4 failure patients. So in that group, there's a high positive response rate. But the challenge is, again, invariably, people in functional medicine will take that study and say, aha, look, a 90% response rate to combination therapy. But yes, but that is not in people who haven't been given any medication. This is in patients who have been chronically failing, I believe, for over six months. Their symptoms and TSHs were not fully responsive to T4. And so it's important to keep that in mind because, again, the meta-analysis that is most current has found a very poor response rate to combination therapy and a fairly high adverse uh, event distribution in that population. So what we want to do is try to use whatever we can to make sure that we're selecting the right patients for that treatment so that we have that 90% response rate and patients are happy and you're happy and not what you will see. And I see, I see a fair number of these cases of people who say, yeah, I tried armor. I didn't feel good. In fact, I may have felt worse. 
And you will see that. And there are patients out there who are experiencing that. So it's important to make sure that we don't rush to premature utilization of the combination therapy, but for the right patient at the right time can be very helpful. Yeah, that's a, a great process and really filters out those people that uh, hopefully indicates it for the right population. Uh, we'll hold it there on the um, algorithm because I really encourage your, your listeners to, to get the uh, newsletter to see it in its full detail. Just before we wrap up, I really want to just quickly touch upon iodine. Um, and as I mentioned to you off air, like, there's probably a little bit of a difference between the US and Australia where I think we in Australia we seem to be more deficient in iodine despite fortification. But where there's one commonality, uh, I think, is the... Uh, administration of iodine, particularly in those sort of higher and what you'd probably consider super physiological doses. Um, what's your, I suppose, elevated uh, spiel on iodine and particularly those larger doses? Well, I, I think you hit some of the key points, which is the the mega dosing of iodine. I think is a mistake. There is some theory and, and some support actually for the posit that if you're toxic with halogens like fluoride and chlorine and bromine, that high dose iodine will dislodge those and detoxify those. But it seems that you will also fairly quickly clear those from your system if you reduce exposure to those. So if you're not eating you know, brominated grains and chlorinated water, uh, and fluoride in your water and, and toothpaste, if, if you make those simple lifestyle and dietary changes, then you have a fairly good chance that this you know, presumed halogen toxicity is going to clear itself with a little bit of time. I wouldn't have any opposition to using iodine if you thought that was a problem, you felt really strongly about that. This is giving you my most liberal interpretation on this, but of, of running a, a you know, more moderate dose of iodine, not mega dosing, if you wanted to try to do a, a halogen flush. I don't really think most people need that. And there are some patients who do seem to derive benefit from supplementing with iodine, but it doesn't seem to be people who need these, this mega dosing of iodine. Conversely, there is some evidence showing an improvement in thyroid autoimmunity when people go on a low iodine diet. Um, and even some eloquent studies showing that when patients were put on a low iodine diet, their thyroid autoimmunity improved. And when they went back to a higher iodine intake, their thyroid autoimmunity flared. Not to mention a massive amount of population observational data showing that rates of thyroid autoimmunity increase when iodine is added to the water supply. Now, the, the quick counter argument to that is, well, it's iodine without selenium, so it propagates that. Sure, I mean, that that could be possible. Uh, I, I guess in my mind, it seems that we can give someone a reasonable dose of iodine combined with selenium rather than needing these mega doses. And I think the same thing applies in many yeah. areas of functional medicine where some people just tend to like and really gravitate to the concept that you have to use a lot of something in order to see a response. Uh, but usually, if you have the right therapy, you don't need a mega dose of the therapy. And sometimes people just try to pave over that and they assume that more is better. So I would be pretty cautious with, with very high doses, you know, multiple uh, or even 10 or higher milligrams. Uh, and I think if you keep it to maybe one milligram per day or even a bit less, that that's a, a good way to replete iodine. Um, without risking any kind of provocation of symptoms or, or thyroid autoimmunity. Yeah, I think that's a, a sensible dose. It's really a double-edged sword, the, the iodine. Okay, well, yeah, let's wrap it up. Um, yeah, it's, I think maybe many of the listeners probably often listen to this while they're walking their dog or doing exercise, et cetera, but I'd probably encourage them to go back home and sit down with a pen and paper and take some notes because I think we covered some really key clinical takeaways there and really uh, valuable content. So um, just before we sign off, just um, give us a bit of an update on the newsletter and how we can access it. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, and the, the newsletter, um, I'm really passionate about the newsletter because what I think is, is so beneficial for people who are subscribed and reading the newsletter is, like I mentioned earlier, 
you're now seeing clinicians who've been reading the newsletter who are finding these problems in thyroid care in their offices. They're applying the concepts we lay out in the newsletter and they're seeing results where they haven't seen the results from the other four or five doctors they saw prior. Um, so it, it's been really validating to see that this isn't just something that I can do in my practice, but these concepts are so well vetted and so universal that when you read them and you understand them and you apply them, you're able to get results for patients who are otherwise non-responsive. Uh, so that that's one of the most exciting things about it, the newsletter. And essentially, we publish one case study plus a number of research studies every month. And I've obviously been chronicling things in, in thyroid and constantly tweaking this algorithm. And there's a tab, when you're a subscriber, there's a tab that says thyroid algorithm. And I update that. The The ferritin was updated only a few months ago after I came across the work of, of Sopi and some of his papers. Uh, so I would highly encourage any clinician to check out the, the Future of Functional Medicine Review clinical newsletter um, because I, I can now really confidently say that there are there are doctors who have literally built their practice. Uh, Joe Mather is a, a medical doctor here, I believe, is in um, Louisiana, and he said he's literally built his practice based upon the model in functional medicine and the fact that he's able to get results for people with less time and with less money has been a real kind of market differentiator for him. Uh, so I think from from A to Z, from head to toe, the newsletter will help clinicians help their patients be able to grapple with some of these challenging clinical issues more effectively and really give them a unified message of functional medicine that, that's, I think, a little bit more well-developed than some of the tons of testing, tons of treatments. I think that that's, that was a, a good model to get functional medicine started, but now that the field is evolving, we can do a little bit better. And, and this is the offering I'm putting out there to try to help clinicians offer that better offering and, and reap the rewards both for practice growth and for the results they get for their patients. So if you go to our homepage, drrusho.com, should be pretty easy to find, but the direct URL is drrusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com slash review. And you can plug in, you can see what the newsletter looks like, you can sign up for some more um, you know, free information. And I would encourage people to join because it's it's a growing movement and it's it's great to see the positive impact that's having out there in the world. So I would invite anyone to check it out. Yes, and uh, on our show notes, we've got a link to a discount. So for a nominal fee, you get a, a good insight into the first month of the, the newsletter. Uh, yeah, that really speaks to how I think you're approaching functional medicine. It's really, you know, like a, a maturing mindset that you're almost doing fewer tests, um, much more sort of patient-centric and holistic. So I really congratulate you for fighting a good cause, and it's and it's obvious you're passionate about this, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Yeah, well, thank you, Nathan. It's always great to be able to chat with you and, and have a like mind who appreciates the uh, the approach. So, you know, thank you for being so open-minded and ingratiating with sharing this message with your audience. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.